Welcome to Technovation. I'm Peter High. My guest today is Seth Cohen, the Senior Vice President and Chief Information Officer of PepsiCo, the snack food and beverage giant with annual revenues exceeding $70 billion. As Chief Information Officer, Seth leads PepsiCo's IT function across all business units. Prior to joining PepsiCo, Seth was the Global Group Chief Information Officer of Reckitt Benckiser. In this interview, we discuss the main differences between digital and analog companies along with PepsiCo's digital agenda. We discuss how data strategy has evolved over the past five to 10 years and a bit about PepsiCo's own data journey. Lastly, we discuss the cross-cultural communications lessons Seth has learned from living all over the world, the benefits of an east-to-west innovation path, PepsiCo's experience switching to an entirely remote workforce, and a variety of other topics. If you enjoy Technovation, please consider reading my new book, Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader. The book's available on Amazon now or wherever else you buy books. As a special offer to our CXO listeners, if you purchase 50 or more books for your team, I'd be happy to join your team for a group discussion on it. To learn more, write us at info at metastrategy.com or visit gettingtonimble.com. And now for a word from our partner, Aptio. Sales teams have CRM systems. Human resources leverage HRM systems. What about the CIO who needs to evolve from a technology expert to a business strategist? In this digital first world, CIOs and their CFO counterparts must ensure technology decisions are made to deliver business value. It's easier said than done. That's why Aptio, the market leader in technology business management, is committed to helping companies manage, plan and optimise their technology spend. After all, champions of change need actionable insights they can trust. Learn more at aptio.com. And now on to the interview. Seth Cohen, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Peter, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion. I am as well. I I'm, I'm, have been for a while here. So Seth, uh, you are the Global Chief Information Officer of PepsiCo. You have been in that role for coming up on a year and a half. Uh, as no two CIO roles are alike, uh, talk a bit about uh, your purview in that role, if you would. Yeah, I, I, I really couldn't uh, have asked for a, a greater opportunity uh, coming back to PepsiCo. I was with the company for a bit of time and left and returned. You know, the, the role for the CIO is, as you would imagine, multifaceted. Um, you know, uh, there's no two days that look alike. But I would say, at a, at a macro level, you know, first and foremost, it's critically important that that our IT systems are able to support our business and be able to make, move, and sell our product across the world. And so that's one of the areas that we can't, we can't let up on at all. Um, in, in addition to that, though, I would say you know, a couple of other areas are of top of mind in the position in terms of ensuring we're, we're advancing the agenda for the company. The, the first is around digital and really ensuring that we have a robust capability, uh, whether it be data or platforms or digital products that sit on the platforms, the IT organization has a pretty significant role to play to ensure that all of that can, can come alive. And, and that's, that's you know, in terms of our growth opportunities, that's a key area for us to be focusing on. And then I, I would always be remiss if I didn't say that cybersecurity is, is clearly a 
going to be a focal point for, I would expect any of my peers in, in positions like ours. Uh, the, 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 the interesting thing we're finding with either the pandemic or even before the pandemic, you know, the threats that we have and we're faced with are, 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 are many. And having a very robust cyber capability to help protect our company is, is a key, key component of, our, of, my, of my time and, and of my priorities. That makes sense. Well, thank you for that for that overview. I'd love to uh, get into a little bit more of the digital side of things that you mentioned. Uh, you talked, for instance, about the development of digital products as one, you know, as the as an outside observer of PepsiCo, the thought of digital products, you know, one thinks of immediately of a of, of a can of Pepsi, for example, as a you know iconic product of the company. Needless to say, the the eponymous uh, uh, product, in fact. Uh, talk a bit about what constitutes digital products within your space, please. That's it's a really good question. And it's, it's, a, it's a discussion that we've been having internally since I've returned, but I would suspect even a little bit before. PepsiCo has this ambition of, of really driving a digital agenda for the company. And if you were to ask me a, really just blankly, what's the difference between a digital company and maybe the opposite would be an analog company? In my opinion, an analog company thinks of their, their products in a single dimension. It's their finished goods. So for Pepsi, that could be a, a can of Pepsi. It could be uh, Lay's potato chips. It could be you know, a Gatorade. It could be anything like that. Digital companies, I believe, tend to think about their product in a more broadened sense. So clearly, our finished goods is part of the equation. But all of the digital solutioning that can help us be better at selling the product or better at manufacturing the product or better at identifying new products that we might want to go after, to me, are all part of the equation in terms of digitization of a company. So it's not necessarily that we're expecting to have Pepsi delivered over the internet to someone for them to, to drink, but rather more it's the case of we're going to be let we want to leverage digital capabilities to be able to be better faster and stronger in terms of how our product is got after in the marketplace that makes sense yes absolutely as opposed to the digital can of pepsi or digital lay potato chip yeah uh, exactly <laughs> you you alluded to as in, in your uh, overview as well the sanctity of data. And I know this is a rising uh, area of importance in so many companies, of course, uh, uh, of course. harnessing one's data better, drawing better conclusions from it um, and the like. I'd love to uh, understand a little bit further about your own data journey and the form that that's taken and the value that you're deriving or continue to anticipate deriving from it, please. It, it's, a, it's a really good question. So I think if you were to go back even five to 10 years ago, most organizations, especially consumer good companies, would have thought of their data as the transactional systems that they use to support them being able to make and distribute their products. So, you know, ERPs is where data is a source of data. But what's, what's evolved over the past, we'll call it, you know, decade or so has been the ability to take information out of the transactional systems and to lift it up at a higher level and enrich the data with whether it be other transactional systems internally or external data sets that could allow us to then take all of that information and to basically leverage optimizers, AI, machine learning, all of the different you know, fun tools that are out there now 
could create new and, and interesting insights for us to then be able to react to. In, in a perfect world, there's a bit of a closed loop that can occur. So you take the data out of your transactional systems, you enrich the data, you then analyze the data and learn from that data to then pump right back into your transactional systems execution capabilities that allows you to then take all that information and bring it to life. So when we talk about the PepsiCo kind of data journey, it's it's really to bring to life what I what I've just described. Now, I would say where we are on that journey, you know, no one's ever going to say, "Oh, we're we're done. The journey's checked and been accomplished." But I would say we're 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 actually making some very good advancements in this journey. We've We've recently signed a, a strategic partnership with Microsoft with the Azure stack. And we have been focusing over the past several years on this idea of taking data out of the transactional systems, basically not encumber it any longer with, it has to be within the four walls of a specific transactional system. And we have had some really good successes in having the data then become analyzable so that we can come up with insights. Now, we have whole teams of people now that are being brought into the organization to help us really fast track and, and mature the capability. But the one of the foundational starting blocks to me is, do we have the data? And do we have that data now available for this information to be looked at? And the answer there, fortunately for us, is yes. That that's, that's, the, that's the capability that we have now felt that we've started to really mature within our organization. It's very interesting. And, you know, it, it calls to mind the way you began that, that all organizations have data of one sort or another. The degree to which they're leveraging it effectively is the bigger question. And, and clearly, you've got a plan to ensure that the organization is doing such. You also mentioned that yours is a uh, a varied and diverse business uh, uh, to include. You, you, you even just mentioned Pepsi and Gatorade and Lay's potato chips. That's not even scratching the surface, of course, of the the, the various products that you sell around the world um, and the complexity of your supply chain beyond that. In addition to the fact that this is, you know, you you are serving all sorts of different tastes and uh, and, and so on. The, the 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 amount of data and the complexity of that data and even the complexion of that data is so varied and. How do you think about uh, like a data strategy as you as you kind of from your perch on top of all of that and managing the complexity and learning along the way and I'm sure course correcting as well. Talk a bit about the way in which you formulate that plan. It's a, it's a really insightful question. Um, so recently, about a year to year and a half ago, we hired a chief data officer as well as a strategy and transformation executive who are really focusing on what I would say data and digital products. And what I, what I mentioned, the fact that we've gotten okay at being able to take data out of the transactional systems, Peter, as you very rightfully call out, just dumping data into a, a data warehouse is not a big idea, right? Because it's you're not going to gain the, the advantages of scale by looking at information. I'll, I'm not proud of this fact and we're working on it, but we're running many different versions of ERP solutions around the organization today. That's not our end state ambition, but that is where we are today. So the, the, the data groups, the, the chief data officer is really focusing quite a bit of their time around the data modeling and the in the, in the data repository and the data cataloging for lack of a better term. 
So as we start to think about kind of the partnerships that we create, the IT organization is very much responsible for the data engineering. So how do we move data in and out of the various transactional systems? Because at the end of the day, we do have to make, move and sell our, our product. The CDO, the chief data office organization then works on the modeling of that information so that it's not just that we're solving one-off problems, but rather we're solving problems in a way that allows it to be very scalable from one market to the next, uh, especially as we come up with common needs that might exist. So it's not always going to be the case that a capability is applicable for every country or every market in the world, but surely there's other markets that can be grouped together that could take advantage of the capability that we might have built for one that we can then quickly be able to apply to others. Seth, you alluded to the fact that you um, this is not your first stint at the organization. You did roughly a decade and a half with Pepsi previously, um, eventually becoming the SVP and CIO of Pepsi uh, Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa uh, before taking a, a post in the United Kingdom with RB as their global uh, group CIO. Uh, what was it about the timing of this and the opportunities that the role um, provided that drew you back? Yeah, a lot of people assumed that it was an absolute no-brainer that when Pepsi called me to return into this role, I, I would drop everything to do it. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, um, it wasn't necessarily going to be a no-brainer decision, but uh, what, what ended up happening was the CEO who I supported for Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa, ultimately that person got promoted to the CEO of, of Global PepsiCo. Um, so he and I had a, a pretty decent working relationship. And what intrigued me to come back was specifically his ambition around the digitization of the company. Uh, Ramon LaGuarda is one of the few CEOs, in my opinion, that actually not only understands the, the names of these terms, but actually understands what's beneath it. And so when, when we started to talk about his ambitions for where he wants to take PepsiCo, the challenge was was one that I just couldn't couldn't pass up, right? It was it, it's a really exciting proposition for our company to truly, you know, I hate to use this term digitize because again, it's such a broad term, but but to truly digitize our organization so that we are going to move from just simply being this, you know, a company that's focusing only on our finished goods as our as our only product to there's a digital component to this as well. Ramon has has enlisted all of his direct reports to be part of this journey. And, and that's the piece also that I feel is a key to success. Often you see these digitization journeys fit within almost disparate groups within the company. And I, I feel that that's usually not gonna be a recipe for a success. Uh, ultimately, this idea of digitization, if it's not embraced by the functions who are actually performing the work, I don't think it's something that you can really truly gain momentum on. And so with Ramon's strong support of the initiative, as well as his, his, his drive with all of his direct reports, it's, it's a perfect storm. So the, the company that I, I came you know, back to was a company that was very excited about this digital journey, which was something that I felt was an exciting thing for me to to come back and help be part of. 
That's really great. Well, uh, both at your time at Pepsi prior, as well as the your your time at RB, as I mentioned before, had you working in a variety of different locations around the globe. You were based in places like London, as I mentioned before, Barcelona. You had responsibilities for sub-Saharan Africa and presumably were there quite often as a result of those yeah. responsibilities. Talk a bit about the advantages of having been a bit of a global citizen for some of the recent parts of your uh, career in educating you as to the broader perspectives one needs to have from a perch or post like the one that you currently have? Yeah, that, that, that's a that's a really uh, deep question. And, and I wish we would have about five hours to get deep. <laughs> I'll, try to, I'll try to paraphrase it in, in my opinion. I think it first starts with cultural. Um, this term around cultural dexterity is one that I think most people understand at the surface what it means, but I don't know if people truly understand how to take advantage of cultural dexterity to be an advantage for you versus a a headwind for you. So if I'm doing work in say Asia versus if I'm doing work in say, I'll be very specific, like the Netherlands as an example, um, it's a very different dynamic that I need to come and show up with, right? So in some parts of the world, confrontation or directness is just part of the vernacular. In other parts of the world, that is the absolute worst way to to approach a problem because you're basically going to scare the people to the point where they're not going to say anything. So you might be headed toward a brick wall and no one's going to say anything because they're afraid of you. And they want to make sure that that they're not going to get in trouble forever ever having questions. So I would say, Peter, one of my early observations in, in some of my global positions has been that, that point around really being conscious of these different cultural differences that you see from one part to the next. To be super clear, and, and this usually comes from America, most people, not most, met, there's many people in America, I won't say most, who feel that if someone's uh, language, if English is not their first language, it must mean they're not as intelligent as maybe other parts. I, I've seen some of that. And I think, you know, you, you see these these expressions where these Americans will come in, they talk very fast, they talk very loud, and, and oh, if you didn't understand me, I'll talk even louder because that must be the problem. That's not really the reality, right? And so what, what I found was that the talent that existed around the world was top-notch was top notch and almost without exception. Like I, I mean, of course you always have some situations in the US as well, where maybe the talent wasn't as great of a match as, as what the company needs or the culture mandated. But once you were able to get beyond, once I was able to get beyond that cultural biasm for, for lack of the better terminology for it, all of a sudden there's this huge unlock where we found there is this tremendous capability and tremendous value that we can you know, basically leverage as, as an organization, especially global companies. You know, so, so, you know, obviously PepsiCo is a very global company. Record Bank Keyser is also a very global company. And we're able to literally learn some, some great things. I would say the second thing that I, I would, would call out is the assumption that all innovation has to go from West to East. And I think that was one where, you know, I, there's, a, there's a great book, I forgot who wrote it, called Reverse Innovation. And it's actually, it's, it's innovation going the other direction to say, you know, listen, a lot of the capabilities that we're trying to build are capabilities that everybody needs. But the problem is, is when you sometimes when you build capabilities 
from west to east, you tend to build capabilities in a fairly cost ineffective way, maybe for other parts of the world. So, you know, with PepsiCo, as with most companies, we have different margin businesses around the world. And as you start to go to the east, you might see some, some margin challenges that you might not have when you're, you're, you're in the west. And so what, what I also discovered in my, in my experiences with Global is there's a lot of great capabilities that have been established in parts of the world that are leverageable, you know, going the other direction. Um, one example I can give of that, which I was just couldn't be more pleased by, is we had a very, um, I would say, cost-effective e-commerce solution in Australia as well as in, in Asia to interact with our, our customers. So we call it a B2B e-commerce solution, business-to-business e-commerce solution. And when the pandemic hit, we had a need very quickly to stand up a direct-to-consumer website in the U.S. And what we were able to do is we were able to take this very inexpensive and but robust solution that we were using in Asia for uh, customer integration or e-commerce, and we were able to apply that to the U.S. And within 30 days, we stood up a full direct-to-consumer e-commerce website, snacks.com. If anyone's listening and would like to order some great Lay's potato chips, I would highly encourage it out of the U.S. Um, but we were able to do that in about 30 days at a very, very attractive price point. And again, this is a great example of what I would say is this, you know, east to west innovation path that's out there. So it's, you know, listen, there's not a day that goes by that there's not a great learning globally about what goes on. I would say, you know, if, if anybody is new to global positions, no matter where you are in the world, if you lead with understanding the cultural dexterity differences first, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at the capabilities that really do exist that you can unlock for the organization that you're part of. And that's really interesting. What a fascinating overview. I appreciate that, uh, Seth. Um, I, I wanted to also ask you, and I'm sure that the, uh, the the broader response to this could be another five-hour conversation, but we are still, unfortunately, in the throes, as at least as we're speaking now, uh, of the global pandemic, the quarantine associated with it, at least for many of us. And I wonder if you can maybe give some top-line lessons from this. I think it's it's been interesting, you know, uh, Necessity being the mother of invention, there's been a lot of necessity in the last uh, the yeah. last year for inventions of various kinds. And I know a number of people have said that um, you know the the silver lining is that some organizations have been pushed in some directions that represent um, positive indelible marks. That is new ways of doing things that will apply even after we are ha- can safely return to offices, shake each other's hands, be in big conference rooms uh, filled to the brim, etc. Um, I wonder if you have any reflections upon some of the lessons of this most unusual past year. That's a, it's a great question. Listen, I, I want I'm going to lead with there's there's really three different stakeholder groups that we can talk about, and I'll go deeper on on the third. But I, I would be absolutely remiss if I didn't mention our our own customers and consumers of our product, and and what we saw with the pandemic was. Um, a, a shift in channels in terms of where people were, were wanting to buy product. And I'm not making a, a comment this was good or bad because you know clearly if you're part of a channel that people were not able to come to, that's not a good situation for you. But to be able to react to that very quickly, I mentioned that snacks.com example. It's a good example of you know being able to meet the needs that were, were out there when the time hit us and it was out there. The second group or stakeholder group that 
I would be remiss if I didn't talk about is the group that has had to show up to work every single day, even through the pandemic, which is what we call our frontline workers. And that's both the sales and supply chain organizations. And what we've been focusing on with them is, you know, their safety and protection. And if I kind of put the IT lens on that, what we were really focusing on has been the ability to do some level of contact tracing and and storage of, of that kind of information so that we have the ability to do it. And now we're starting to think about potentially looking at if if the laws allow for it, some type of vaccine tracking to determine does someone or does someone not have the vac have a vaccine. But those are those are a bit early days. Now, I think the the real crux of the question you're asking is around the the knowledge workers or the office workers. And and there I would say we probably saw the most dramatic change. And and to kind of put things into perspective about a little bit well, I guess a little bit more than a year ago, probably a year ago in a couple of weeks, um, I, I, we were talking at the executive committee. I was asked the question, hey, how hard would it be if we went to 100% remote working? And I, my response was, well, if you could give me like two to three weeks notice, and if we could do like a trial run, it would be great. Well, unfortunately, as, as I'm sure most companies and most CIOs were faced with, that two or three weeks turned into two or three days. And we immediately, over a course of about 72 hours, went to remote working. Um, I would say a couple of the learnings that we had in those early days. So first, thank goodness we had the relationship with Microsoft on the cloud side, and we have some really smart technical engineers on, on our side that have already kind of worked out the, for lack of a better term, the plumbing between the Azure estate and our own on-premise estate. And the reason why that was such a huge unlock for us was it allowed us to basically stand up VPN capabilities overnight. Like I should say scale up. We had VPN, but not to the scale that we would have needed. And because we, were, we already had the wiring between the data centers already established, we were able to pass people through the Azure stack, which was incredibly helpful from a scale point of view. Um, we, we had already some pretty decent technologies that were on the devices. So the ability to split tunnel and, and to really ensure that not all traffic had to go through our data centers that maybe didn't need to. So if someone's doing just an internet search, they don't really need to go through our data center, which ended up being a huge, uh, a very significant unlock unlock for us. Um, I would say a couple of the other areas that were, were interesting as we worked through some of these uh, was we found that our video conferencing capabilities was working quite well. And, you know, we're, we use Zoom, but, you know, Microsoft Teams, or all, they all work. And we found that that was, that was working quite well. In fact, maybe too well. Um, when I look at the statistics, we saw our Zoom usage go up about fivefold from pre-pandemic to post-pandemic. Um, and I'll spend a second a little bit later on talking about the, the good and the bad with that one. But but that did allow us to have connectivity almost instantaneously. And and because of the, the cloud capabilities that these um, that these video conferencing providers do have, all of a sudden we had easy access to our team members as well as the leadership across the entire company. So um, there, there really was not uh, even a day that went by that we didn't lose that connectivity, which we felt really good about. Now, 
I would say, you know, cybersecurity is obviously a concern as well. And, and, and there I felt we, we, we did, we were pretty well prepared for the event as my, as my uh, CISO would tell us, you know, the attack surface looks very different now than it did before. Um, but I would say with the endpoint protection that we have, we've, we've been able to hold our own um, in, in that arena. The piece that I would say was not as readily um, accessible in terms of people jumping on it was what I would say the more robust collaboration tools. And this is where I think there's, Peter, a bit of a, a, bit of a challenge that, that we're, we're working through right now. So there's this concept that I'm sure you've heard and most of the listeners have heard around Zoom fatigue or video conferencing fatigue. And, and I think what, what, you know, if you kind of boil that down to what does that really mean? Well, you no longer have impromptu meetings any longer, right? You basically are now almost forcing yourself to schedule, you know, basically back to back to back to back Zoom meetings. And what I believe has taken place is that most people have simply tried to replicate their meeting structure via Zoom. So back to that earlier conversation around an analog company versus a digital company, so a digital company also works very differently, right? A digital company works very iteratively and, and is able to use agile in, in everything that it does. It doesn't necessarily mean meetings for everything. But I think what we've most more often than not have done is we've just simply tried to replicate our on-premise environment remotely. And, and that's creating a bit of a fatigue to the organization. I mentioned that we saw our video conferencing go up by about 5x. Um, our collaboration tools only went up a little bit less than 2x. So, you know, there's clearly a gap there in terms of people really embracing some of the collaboration tools. And when I say collaboration tools, you know, things like Microsoft Teams or OneDrive, you know, there, there's a whole host of them out there that can be done. They're just not yet being fully embraced by the organization as much as I think we could actually go. So that's, that's going to be an area of focus that we're going to continue to try to push on because it's my belief, and, and as I, I'm a pretty, I think a pretty good adopter of a lot of these tools personally, I do feel it is a tremendous time saver, right? You know, so you don't necessarily need to be in meetings to, to work on things, right? You can actually, in fact, one of the things I had done with my own direct reports was I was finding that I was getting upwards of 1,000 to 2,000 emails a day when COVID first hit about COVID. And I couldn't keep up. I mean, this this is just ridiculous. And so I eventually just told my team, listen, if you want to interact with me on COVID, we're only going to do it on Microsoft Teams. And this way we can actually solve the problem collectively together as opposed to one-off emails that are going back and forth. And one of my team members did some statistics. We saved like thousands of meeting hours by just simply forcing that type of a thing. So I, I believe this is something where it's, I don't pat myself on the back. That's not, this is not a big idea, right? This is an area that I think we can actually leverage for just about area, any area that we work in that we can probably, really try to mature ourselves as we move forward. I wanted to also ask you, Seth, uh, I mentioned earlier you were a, um, a geographic CIO uh, um, previously. Uh, presumably that same sort of structure continues and yours is a federated organization. I'm curious, um, what is the experience of having worked at that level? How does How is it... Um, informed you as you've thought about the collaboration with the various people who were your peers uh, um, at that level of the organization? Yeah, so 
I guess there's two ways to answer the question. One is ways of working, but the second is kind of more emphasis of work. And and right. I think one of the things that I I'll, I'll try to address the the latter one first. One of the big I would say epiphanies that I had when I had my my last role at Pesco prior to leaving was around really the understanding of how the the, the business operates and. And I think what can happen is if if you spend too much of your time in corporate positions, you run the risk, not to say it always happens, but you do run the risk of of almost becoming disassociated with the actual day-to-day business activities that go on. So I would say, you know, one of the things that I found in my time in one of those roles that I try to be sensitive to with my team members is the pressures of the day-to-day business are are big. And and those are ones where, you know, our our sales teams are constantly trying to hit objectives and targets. Our manufacturing teams are trying to support them and making sure products are available. And shoot, the IT organization has to be there, right? We have to be there in in a big way to help enable all of those. And then you start to get into areas that are maybe not as frontline-ish like, your back-end financial close process, right? Which, you know, you could quickly start to say, well, I'm not going to worry too much about that. Well, guess what? Our, our shareholders care quite a bit about that, right? So that's when you also have to make sure are, are staying true to what's going on. So I guess I'd like to think, and maybe I should ask my direct reports this question to see how good I am at this or not. I'd like to think that I am quite sensitive to any issues that have any implications to our ability to make and sell our products. And so I, I will, well, I'd like to think I'm available at any hour of any day. Listen, this idea of global, people get really excited about the G and global. I tell people, unless you have bags under your eyes, you really probably don't have a true global role, right? I mean, global is 24-7. There isn't a, a day or an hour that goes by throughout the week that we're not in prime time selling or manufacturing product at PepsiCo, which means there's always a chance if one of the, if there's a problem anywhere around the world, you know that you need to make sure you're at the ready to to help and lend lend a hand. That makes sense. The sun doesn't uh, doesn't uh, set on Pepsi's empire. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, I wanted to also ask you, Seth. We've covered a couple of uh, actually several different trends uh, of importance to uh, to CIOs, but I wonder here towards the close of our conversation. As you look forward, say two or three years, are there any trends that particularly excite you? Well, there, yeah, there's many. Yeah, listen, there, there couldn't be a more exciting time to be in in this type of a position, in my opinion. Um, I think you know over the years, IT has found itself on varying degrees of the spectrum in terms of of being uh, thought of as a thought leader in organizations. Well, I'll tell you today. Listen, IT is is very much at, at the front and center in a lot of what we do. I would say most of the trends that I would call out that I get excited by are trends that are back to this kind of digital space that, that's out there. And so, you know, whether it be optimization engines that are learning through, you know, neural, neural learning capabilities or through rule-based learning capabilities to select and and help our our team members do their jobs better. Like if you're a salesperson, for example, you know, walking into a store, all of a sudden being prompted, hey, you really should push this product because this one SKU 
will both help your customer gain higher sales, but also clearly help us because we're selling to them for, for this. Um, that's a big idea, right? And that's a big area that, we, that we're, we're working on. I, I also think that we're just at the tip of the iceberg on, on, on these optimizations. I think this is where you know we're really leaning in and we believe this is a big unlock. Other areas, whether it be you know RPA, robotic process automation, I also think is, is a big idea that we can take to various different places. I like most companies, we've, we've, we're, we're in it and we're using it in, 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 in piecemeal areas. Um, one of the things that we are focusing on is a more robust global business service organization across our, our company. And, and, and automation is going to be key, right? It's not just about co-location of a bunch of people, smart people together. It's about how do I really think through a more efficient way to do our various processes? And, and I think automation is, is, a, is a big one. Um, other areas that I think are, are also intriguing to me is I, I am quite interested in quantum. Um, and it's one that I believe has some interesting potentials for, for our industry. Quantum seems to work best in the optimization spaces. Um, and, and one of the things that that we are we are playing around with a bit. I wouldn't say we're we're majoring in it yet because you know as we know quantum is the bit on the on the cutting edge, but I do believe quantum is going to help us figure out optimizations in ways that today are just not feasible. I mean, like like most companies, when we're running optimizations, we're typically constrained by usually the hardware, right? We're constrained by the processing power that's needed to do the acquisitions and therefore we limit data sets that go into it to enable that 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 criteria to be met in terms of a time dimension. Well, quantum takes that away. I mean, quantum should be able to do that in, in ways that we haven't thought about before. Um, yeah, I would say those are probably some of the bigger ones that, that, I'm, that I'm interested in. Those, those are great ones. Thank you for highlighting those. Uh, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, uh, I'm sure in, in asking a PepsiCo exec what their favorite product is, it's like asking about their favorite child uh, to, to rank their children from first to last. But any any products that you're particularly excited about these days? Well, I'd say, you know, with, with, with Pepsi, that we have such a wide variety of different products that it, it's hard to it's hard to pinpoint it to just one. Um, but I'm I'm a huge Gatorade fan. I I, I drink it quite a bit, um, and we have some really nice innovations that have been happening in in that space. Um, you know the, the 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 whole PepsiCo um, I would say beverage area has been going through so much innovation, whether it be through Bubbly, which is, is a great product as well that I, I'm very, very pleased with. And then, and clearly, you know, listen, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention our, 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 our snack side of the business. And, and I, I I would suspect that, Peter, in your pantry, you you probably have some of our products. I know I have a, a whole pantry full of our, of our products. And, and while I don't necessarily pick just one because I like to vary it by day, but it's uh, it's definitely a staple for, for my family. That's fantastic. Well, hey, Seth Cohen, thank you so much for joining me on Technovation today, sharing a bit about your remarkable journey uh, around the world in a variety of different roles, your rise at Pepsi, your leadership th the, through the pandemic, many of the innovations that you and your team are pushing, especially through digital and better use of data. It's been a great conversation. Peter, thank you for your time. And I do appreciate the opportunity to talk to you.
Thanks for tuning in. Please join us on Thursday for a discussion on process modernization and the future of work with Dow Chief Information Officer and Chief Digital Officer Melanie Kalmar and CarMax's Chief Information Officer and Chief Technology Officer Shami Mohammed.